0: John 3 is where we'll be again today. <clears throat> John chapter 3. <clears throat> in many ways it's been a challenging week. Um, if you were here last Sunday we it was just the beginning of this conflict over in the Middle East. We didn't have a full understanding of what had taken place, but as the week has gone on, um, we're finding out more and more information. I'm sure you've been tuned in to what's going on, at least to some degree, following that. Um, boy, the, the full extent of the atrocities that have taken place against Israel is, is just, it's amazing. Um, we've experienced a lot of emotions. I, I think for a while I was just in a state of shock, like, is this really happening? And uh, did these people really do the things that I'm seeing and hearing about? Um, and the range of emotions from... Heartache and sadness for these people that are experiencing such loss, and <clears throat> stomach is even sick over some of the things that you're hearing about happening. Um, such brutality, such inhumanity, um, and then even a sense of anger and a desire for vengeance that God would that God would go and do something here and and um, <clears throat> and take care of what's going on. Uh, against these people that have committed these acts against Israel, I, I don't know. Maybe you can relate to this. Maybe your mind's going in those directions as well. Um, I've had a lot of questions from in, different individuals. What do we do? How do we respond? What, what does this mean? And I don't know that I have the answers to all of those questions. I want to share just a couple of thoughts here before we get into the message, kind of as a an intro into it. Uh, but just a few thoughts that I've been running through in in my head as I've been thinking about this. Uh, one, limit your exposure. <laughs> Um, yes we need to know what's going on but we don't need to know everything about what's going on and it can, be, it can be tempting to just saturate ourselves with this and look up everything and watch everything there's some things out there that you don't need to see um, there's some things out there that you can't unsee once you've seen them um, and I understand why some people are putting those things out there they want us to understand the nature of evil and we do need to understand that, I get that uh, but there's some incredible brutality that's taken place that and you know if we saturate ourselves 24 7 with this it's going to affect the way we think and um, we need to be careful with that as well there's a balance we need to understand but we need to need to limit that to some degree Uh, find worthy sources find sources that you can trust as you're looking at information as well second I would say pray we're commanded to pray for the peace of Jerusalem and Israel is still God's chosen people and and there's so much that we can pray for for comfort for wisdom uh, both for the Israelis, for our government, that they would do what needs to be done. Pray that this doesn't escalate into a full-out war. Uh, the potential is there for all of these things, and we need to be on our knees uh, beseeching God in this regard. Uh, pray also that the gospel would go forth during this time. Uh, it's an opportunity, and I'll mention the Barams, our, our missionaries that live in Samaria. They're safe. We've heard from them. They're doing fine. Uh, but their prayer is, how can we reach out? How can we share the gospel? This is, a, this is an opportunity for that. Uh, so some thoughts that go along with that in, in my mind, uh, we've got an opportunity as well. It's not wrong to mourn. It's not wrong to experience grief through this. I don't know anybody that's over there directly involved in the conflict. I don't, I don't have uh, personal attash, attachment to faces and, and people that are there suffering. But they're humans, and it's humanity, and they're suffering. And we can identify with their grief. God tells us to rejoice with them that rejoice and to weep with them that weep. I think that's a good thing for us to do, to, to demonstrate compassion. Um, we've been talking a lot about seeing things through the eyes of Jesus Christ and then responding with the heart of Jesus Christ. And if our heart is not touched by what these people are going through, then then there's a problem in our hearts. We've got to understand that compassion. Jesus would want that from us. Then I would just lastly say this, live with purpose. Um, I know a lot of people are saying, well, is this the end times? Are these signs of the end times? and I don't know how to answer that that question completely, but if this event gives us a renewed sense of urgency as far as Christ could come back, then that's not a bad thing. That can be something good that comes out of this. We don't know the day or the hour. Scripture is clear about that. Um, Jesus doesn't know. Satan doesn't know. That's something in the hand of the Father. But while we don't know the day or the hour, we are commanded to look for that blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And if this helps us to look up, that's a good thing. So let me encourage you in that regard to do that. Uh, There's nothing that needs to take place on the timetable of of end time events before Jesus can come back. We're not waiting for another box to check or something else to happen. Um, He's going to come back when he's ready to come back. I I suspect that it's going to be a little more of a surprise. As you look through the illustrations in the Gospels, I think think there's going to be many that aren't ready, uh, but oh, that we would be ready. You know, it's a sobering thought to think that what we're seeing now is just a precursor of what's going to come. If we understand Scripture, we understand that the Holy Spirit was sent when Jesus ascended to heaven and he's living in us as believers when the rapture takes place, the believers are going to be taken out, and this one that's been restraining evil, the Holy Spirit, is going to be taken out as well. And if there's this kind of evil today with the Holy Spirit's influence still present, what's it going to be like when evil can run unchecked and unhindered, unrestrained? Uh, I, don't, I don't want my friends and loved ones that aren't saved to experience that. And that's where this should give us a renewed sense of urgency, uh, to share our faith with those around us. I guess I would say this, we have a tremendous opportunity to share Jesus Christ right now. People have questions. With tragedy comes opportunity. I'm not saying we need to force discussions and bring things up, but I think we need to be ready to give a reason for the hope that we have in Christ, and this gives us a platform to do that, and I would encourage you to be thinking along that line. I can't think of a better passage to come to in regards to what we just talked about than John chapter 3. People need the gospel. They need to understand what's going on. And there's no better presentation of the gospel than what we find right here in John chapter 3. And I'd like to look at that a little closer here today. Uh, let's go ahead and read through uh, these verses again, uh, maybe just down to, to verse 18, uh, starting at chapter 3, verse 1, just to f- remind ourselves of the text and get it back into our minds. It's been a long week. There is a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Marvel not, don't be amazed, that I say unto you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the spirit. And Nicodemus answered and said unto him, How can these things be? And Jesus answered and said unto him, Art thou a master of Israel? And knowest not these things? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, we speak what we know, and testify that we have seen. And ye receive not our witness. If I have told you earthly things, and you believe not, how shall you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? And no man hath ascended up to heaven but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up Father, as we look at this text today, I pray that you would open our eyes, uh, help us to see the truths that you have for us here. Uh, Father, encourage our hearts by it, uh, motivate us, equip us to better share our faith with other people. And Father, for that, we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've been introduced to a man by the name of Nicodemus, and there's no point in rehashing what we've already talked about. Just a couple of thoughts here. Uh, Nicodemus was a man that was religious, but not only was he religious, he was lost, he checked all the boxes when it came to spirituality, when it came to being religious. There wasn't anything that he, that he did not check. It, if you were to find somebody that could say, I think I could get to heaven on my own merits, Nicodemus would be one. The Apostle Paul would be another one. And both of them have to come to the point where they understand that that is not sufficient. That's not what it takes. <laughs> And Nicodemus, I think, made a fatal mistake into thinking that simply being born into the right family or working diligently to obey a set of rules or living an exemplary life, that's what it took to enter the kingdom of God. And Jesus shocks Nicodemus to the core of his being with a statement that, you know, the answer isn't an outward physical demonstration of piety. It's not what you do. It's in an inward spiritual renewal. Nicodemus, you must be born again. That's how you can enter the kingdom of God. And that parallel, just like we don't do anything to attain our physical birth, so we can do nothing to bring about our spiritual birth. We don't have a say in that. It's an act of God. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. Ephesians tells us that. But God, in his mercy, draws us to himself, and he convicts the heart of sin and righteousness and of judgment. And the Spirit of God, using the word of God, regenerates our hearts, and he gives us new life when we respond to his conviction with repentance and faith. Nicodemus, that's what you need. It's an inward act, an act of the spirit. Well, in the first 10 verses, Jesus kind of shatters Nicodemus' misconceptions about how to enter the kingdom. But from verse 11 on, he begins to explain how the new birth comes about. And that's what I'd like us to focus on today. In this earlier section, we see five times where Jesus refers to the need to be born again. Did you catch those as we work through the passage? There's five different times in verse 3. I say unto you, you must accept a man be born again. Uh, Verse 5, accept a man be born of water and the Spirit. In verse 6, the tail end of that, that which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. Uh, Verse 7, don't marvel that I said you must be born again. And then at the end of verse 8, so is everyone that is born of the Spirit. Five times he brings this up and he's bringing this before Nicodemus. When, When something is repeated that often, there's a reason for it. He's getting that across to Nicodemus. But if we look in the next section, we see seven times where Jesus brings out the idea of faith. Nicodemus, you have to believe. You have to believe. And as we work through this, we can see it, um, it it's, it's stated seven different times in verse 12. Uh, he talks about you don't believe, and then later on, if I, how are you going to believe? Uh, you look down in verse 15, whosoever believes on him. Verse 16, whosoever believes on him. Verse 18, he that believes on him is not condemned. He that believes not is condemned. Why? Because he has not believed on the name of the only begotten Son of God. So the connection here is unmistakable. Except a man be born again, he can't enter the kingdom of God. But except a person believe in Jesus Christ, he can't be born again. That's the connection. Faith is the key to the new birth. Well, when we left Nicodemus last week, he didn't understand it yet. He still hadn't put two and two together. He wasn't getting it. In fact, he says there in in verse 9, how can these things be? I don't understand. I think in a sense, Nicodemus is having a hard time letting go of what he's always believed and wrapping his head around what Jesus is saying. There's a point where he has to unlearn a little bit of what he's been taught so that he can understand the truth. Let's look a little closer and see how Jesus ties this idea of faith to the concept of the new birth as we work through this passage. Uh, the first point in your outline, we've, we've hit that several times over the last two weeks, so I'm just mentioning it, uh, the necessity of the new birth. Um, we don't have to go through the, the, the points that explain that. Uh, you understand that. Second point is this, the tragedy of unbelief. There's a necessity of the new birth, but there's a tragedy of unbelief. And Nicodemus is in a state of unbelief here in this passage. And it's tragic because our unbelief keeps us from the kingdom of God. It keeps us from being born again. As I was reading down through here this week, I saw this a little bit differently. There's there's four ways Nicodemus is described as far as in relationship to what he knows and understands about the new birth. And let's walk through these four things here. They're in your notes. I think think it'll help as we see it. Look at verse 9. First of all, he didn't understand. Jesus is giving him teaching, and he's not understanding it. How can these things be? Connect that back to verse 7, marvel not that I say unto you, you must be born again. Don't be shocked, don't be amazed, don't be so incredulous that I'm saying these things to you. Uh, That word marvel not describes the human reaction to somebody that doesn't understand what he's hearing. And so he's amazed, he's kind of shocked by what Jesus is saying. So he doesn't understand that, then also in verse 10, he doesn't know. Art thou a master of Israel, and knowest not these things? So for Nicodemus, at this point, it's a lack of understanding and it's a lack of knowledge. Uh, he doesn't get it. He's not following what Jesus is saying. And Jesus reproves him for this lack of knowledge, doesn't he? Nicodemus, you're sitting in Moses' seat. You're teaching these truths, but you don't understand them. Um, and it seems like you're incapable of understanding it here at this point. It's interesting as you go on to that next, phrase, next verse, we'll, we'll look at it. Nicodemus, you don't know what you're talking about. You're teaching without knowledge. We speak what we do know. Let me give you some authoritative truth here as we're working through this, this together. So he didn't understand and he didn't know, but we look next in verse 11 and we see that he didn't receive. And there's a, there's a little switch here. We speak what we know and testify what we have seen. You receive not our witness." So a lack of understanding and a lack of knowledge, and now he's not willing to receive. The word receive means to take with the hand, to accept something. It's the word that we use for receiving a gift. It involves something on my part. I'm taking it. Um, we use that illustration when we're giving the gospel, don't we? The gospel is something that must be received. And we tie it back to 1 John chapter, uh, chapter 1. And you can look back there in verse 12. As many as received him. To them gave he power to become the sons of God. The connection of receiving and the new birth there that we're seeing here in John chapter 3. It all ties together. It's so in the present tense. I'm giving you this truth, but you're not receiving it. You're not reciprocating. And so on, on lack of understanding, he doesn't know and he doesn't receive. And then letter D, he doesn't believe. Look down at verse 12. If I've told you earthly things and ye believe not. How will you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? The implication there is Jesus is giving him truth and he is not believing it. He's not not understanding, but now he's not agreeing. Um, Believing is to agree to the accuracy of something. Uh, It's to become persuaded that something is true, to acknowledge that something is right. And then that next step of acting upon that knowledge and information. And so there's a tie between the first two and the second two. I think at this stage of the game, it's no longer a matter of intellect or understanding for Nicodemus. It's a matter of the will. It's a matter of the will. There's a progression here from understanding and knowing to receiving and believing. And he wasn't making that connection. He wasn't making that switch. I do think at first it's a lack of knowledge and understanding. And I think as you share the gospel with people, you can identify with that. We're telling them things that they're not getting. Uh, It's just kind of rolling off and they're like, oh, I'm not processing this. Um, But the more information that Jesus gave gave to Nicodemus, the more truth he was understanding. And it got to the point where I think he had enough knowledge to receive and to believe, but he was refusing to do that. Um, Believing and receiving are acts of the will, they're volitional. And here Nicodemus is making a choice. And that's a serious thing. Unbelief is a serious thing. It is a tragedy. And we tie that now over to verse 18. Why is it such a big deal? Well, verse 18 says that he that believes on him is not condemned, but he that believes not is condemned because he doesn't believe. That's the crux of the issue. Why do we not get eternal life? Why do we not understand the new birth or receive the new birth? It's because of a lack of faith. It's just not being willing to believe. So what was it that Nicodemus was refusing to believe here? I don't know that I have the total answer to this, but I think it's the same thing that the Pharisees as a whole struggled with, with Jesus the whole time that he was here on this earth. They struggled to accept the fact that he was God. And I think that we see that here in the, in the flow of the passage. Nicodemus believed that Jesus was the Messiah. They, he believed that Jesus was a prophet, or even you could say the prophet that would come into the world. I think he believed that. But he was struggling with this idea that Jesus was God. To him, Jesus was a man just like he was. Now, he says back in verse 2 that he was a man that had God's hand upon him. But notice what he says. No man can do these miracles. He still sees Jesus as a man. And so Jesus now begins to validate his divinity in these verses as we look through them. Some of it is pretty obvious, and some of it's a little bit more subtle behind the scenes. He starts out in verse 11 saying, Verily, verily, I say unto you. And that's the the phrase that we've looked at. It's the third time we see it here in this passage. And when Jesus uses that, he's drawing attention to it. He's saying, Nicodemus, this is important. Uh, Nicodemus, what I'm speaking to you is truth. I know what I'm talking about. Make sure that you get this. We look next in that verse and we see an unusual change in voice. Did you notice the switch from the singular to the plural? It, it kind of caught me as I was reading through here in verse 11. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, it's Nicodemus and Jesus having this conversation, but what is the next phrase? We speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and ye receive not our witness. Why the change in voice? Well, there's a lot of explanations, possible explanations, but it seems like the majority of the folks that I've been reading uh, indicate they think this is a Trinitarian reference here. This is a, 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 an allusion to the Trinity. And you could go back earlier with the baptism of Jesus, which just took place shortly before this. Uh, what happened at the baptism? Jesus was baptized, and he comes up out of the water, and the Holy Spirit comes down and lands on him as a sign of the Holy Spirit, the dove. And Jesus, uh, God's voice audibly from heaven, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Uh, I think that's likely what Jesus is in, in implying here, a, tr- a Trinitarian reference. And if that's the case, Jesus is saying, I'm speaking with the authority of the Godhead because I'm part of that Godhead. I'm talking to you as God. But we see as we work down through here that Jesus is a first-hand eyewitness. He says, we speak what we know. We testify of things that we have seen. Where has he seen them? Down to verse 13, from heaven. Jesus Christ is an eyewitness of heaven. And firsthand knowledge of heaven allows me to speak with authority. I can accurately speak of heavenly things. It goes on in verse 13. He says, no man has ascended to heaven, but I came down from heaven. (laughs) Wow. Nicodemus might be thinking of Moses at this point, the greatest prophet that he knows at this point. And Moses went up to the mount, but Moses never ascended to heaven. And Jesus is saying, not only did I ascend into heaven, I came down from heaven. And Nicodemus, that makes me God. John chapter 1, verse 14 clarifies that for us a little bit. You can't help but think about that as you're, as you're thinking about this passage. He says in verse 14, The word, that's Jesus Christ, was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The word was made flesh. It dwelt among us. Nicodemus, I've come down from, earth, or from heaven to earth. Well, he goes on in, in the verse, and he mentions another phrase. It says, he that came down from heaven, even the son of man. And that's quite a statement. I think Nicodemus would have connected that statement with the Messiah. I think his mind would have gone back to Daniel chapter 7. In fact, let's go back there together. The book of Daniel and chapter 7, where this term son of man is used, obviously, in a messianic context. Um, Daniel chapter 7 let's pick up reading in verse 13 Daniel says I saw in the night vision and behold one like the son of man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the ancient of days and they brought him near before him and there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people and nations and languages should serve him his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed I wonder if Nicodemus made that connection I think likely he did And describing the Son of Man as one who came with the clouds of heaven before the ancient of days thats God the Father, given dominion and glory in a kingdom, all people and nations and languages serving him, an everlasting dominion, a kingdom that would never be destroyed, an eternal kingdom. And Jesus makes here that reference, saying, I am the Son of Man. But not just that, he goes on in the passage and clearly indicates that he's not only as the Son of Man, he's also the Son of God. And we see that next as we go down into verses 15 and 16 and 17. God so loved the world that he gave, he sent his only begotten son, the son of God, to come into this earth. Verse 17, God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And Jesus is indicating to Nicodemus that I am the son of man and I am the son of God. Nicodemus, you need to believe in my deity, in my divinity. I see one more thought here, and that's what we find this at the end of verse, let's see if I can find it, verse 13. No man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man, notice that next phrase, which is in heaven, present tense, which currently is in heaven. So how can this one be talking to Nicodemus here on this earth and at the same time be in heaven? He's starting to talk of some heavenly truth here. And Nicodemus, I think his head's spinning a little bit as Jesus is describing all this to him. Nicodemus, I'm omnipresent. I'm here speaking with you right now, but I'm also in heaven. I have both a human and a divine nature. I'm omnipresent. I can be both places at the same time. Nicodemus, I think what Jesus is saying is I am much more than just a rabbi. I'm much more than just a teacher. I'm much more than just a miracle worker. Nicodemus, I am God. And if you're going to be born again, you need to believe that. You need to come to that understanding. So Nicodemus needs to believe in who Jesus is, but he also needs to believe in what he was going to do. And that's significant as well. Look down at verse 14 as we get to the next point in our outline. Now, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Not only is it important for him to understand that Jesus Christ is God, his deity, he needed to understand the sufficiency of Christ's death. Now, Think back with me to Nicodemus' understanding of the kingdom and the Messiah. He really believes that it's a, a kingdom, a Messiah is coming, going to set up an earthly kingdom, we're going to overthrow Rome, all that's going to happen. Uh, he's missed some things in the picture here. And again, the Old Testament, you know, we're looking back on it, and it's easy for us to put those dots together. Imagine trying to read the Old Testament before it happened, before the cross happened, and put all this together. Well, Nicodemus saw Jesus as a human Messiah about to set up his kingdom. And so Jesus now helps him understand that he's missing part of the story. Is Jesus going to come someday and reign as king over his kingdom? Absolutely, he's going to do that. But first, he must suffer as our savior. One day, he will come with power as the lion of the tribe of Judah. But first, he needs to come with humility as the lamb of God. One day, Jesus Christ will come with a sword. But before that... He needs to submit to the cross. And so Jesus now explains this to Nicodemus with an Old Testament illustration. He gives him an Old Testament story. Uh, Turn back with me to Numbers chapter 21. I'm looking at my audience, and you know this story. We probably wouldn't even have to turn here. Uh, But let's go ahead and look and see it. Numbers chapter 21. If we didn't have what Jesus gives to us here in John 3, we would just think this was an amazing story from the Old Testament. But now Jesus makes it so much more. Let's start reading in verse 4 of Numbers 21. And they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to compass the land of Edom, and the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. Notice how they responded to their discouragement and to the struggles they were facing. The people spake against God, and they spake against Moses. Wherefore have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no bread, neither is there any water. And the next phrase, our soul loatheth this light bread. Wow, what a statement. Um, Wow, yeah, you could park on that for a little while. Well, Jesus, the Lord doesn't take that well. He says, the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. They bit the people, and much people of Israel died. Therefore, the people came to Moses. Folks, this response is a good response. They said, we have sinned. And then they confessed specifically what they had done that was sin. We've spoken against the Lord. We've spoken against thee. Pray unto the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. The prayer was that he would take the snakes away. But what does the Lord do? Verse 8, the Lord said unto Moses, make thee a fiery serpent. Set it upon a pole and it shall come to pass that every one that is bitten, when he looks upon it, shall live. He didn't take them away, but he gave them, gave them an ability to live through the midst of it. So Moses made a serpent of brass and put it upon a pole, and it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man when he beheld the serpent, when he looked upon the serpent of brass, he lived. We read that story, and we don't think maybe the time frame that's involved. How long would it have taken for Moses to get brass, to melt it down, to fashion a serpent, to get a pole, to build it and put it all on there and get it set up in the middle of the camp? This wasn't just a a couple-hour process. It took significant time. But it's quite a story. This, I think, was Moses' last miracle that he did as far as what was going on, as far as a miraculous thing that he was involved in. I think Nicodemus would have remembered this story well. But notice what Jesus does. He takes this Old Testament story and he gives it a New Testament fulfillment. From the snake on the pole to Christ on the cross. In the same way that Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Even so must the Messiah be lifted up. Nicodemus You think I'm coming to set up a kingdom, and yes, I'm going to do that, but first I've got to go to the cross. He's helping him to see that. And just as Israel sinned against God, so all we like sheep have gone astray. Just as their sin had a deadly consequence, so to us the wages of sin is death. And just as they responded in humility, so we must respond and humbly repent of our sins. Just as Moses elevated the snake upon a pole, so Jesus must be lifted up on a cross just as they had to look with faith so we are commanded to believe in Jesus Christ as well just as their faith granted physical life so our faith grants us everlasting life the parallels are striking as you work through this passage the remedy for us is the same as it was for them to look to look with faith and to live as so I was reading through this passage and one of the cross references that I have in my bible is to Isaiah chapter 45 verse 22 and that verse is this, Look unto me and be ye saved, all ye ends of the earth, for I am God and none else. It's quite a verse in regards to what Jesus is telling Nicodemus here and what's going on in his heart and in his life. I wonder, as a scholar of the Old Testament, did that verse come back to Nicodemus' mind? I don't know. I wonder. Again, my imagination runs away. I wonder if this is what finally helped him understand what Jesus was saying from that verse in the Old Testament, look unto me and be ye saved. I am God and none else. Nicodemus, you need to understand that I am God. You need to understand that I came to die on a cross before I'm going to set up my kingdom. Nicodemus, you need to understand the sufficiency of my death. But that brings us to point number five, and that is the responsibility of mankind to believe. And as we look down at verse 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Verse 15 starts, that, whosoever. That, in Greek, they call it a hinna clause. The word for that is, is hinna, and it's a purpose clause. You could translate it, in order that. And so that's the reason why this is all happening. In order that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. The purpose that Jesus Christ came to this earth the purpose that he was lifted up on a cross to bear the penalty for the sins of the world is that we might have the opportunity to believe and then experience new birth. That's the connection. Well, there's a lot that could be said as you work through this passage. I don't know how many countless messages have been preached on John 3.16. Um, I'll just share a few thoughts as we wrap this up today. We see, first of all, an open invitation, don't we? Jesus says, whosoever believes on me should not perish but have everlasting life. It says he died for the sins of the world. There's an open invitation here. And a person that takes a passage like this and says, no, Jesus just died for the elect, he's reading his theology into the scripture. We need to be careful with that. Uh, We've got to take what Jesus said here. I've got a commentator that I I really enjoy. um, And he would go that direction with it. And um, I'm not sure why he does that except from his theological perspective. Jesus died for the sins of the world. When we take the gospel to people in our community, we can go with the assurance that Jesus Christ died for them and that they have an opportunity to accept Jesus Christ as their Savior. Why? It says whosoever, and he died for the sins of the world, not for a select group within the world. There's an open invitation. That open invitation comes with a single requirement. What's that requirement? Whosoever believes. That's all it is. Whosoever believes. Whosoever believes. Act in faith, make the choice, not just an intellectual faith, but a genuine, repentant belief in your heart. It's not just believing that Jesus is who he says he is. It's now taking that and acting in faith upon that, that he did that for you. And it's accepting and receiving that gift of eternal life. So an open invitation with a single requirement, and that invitation is to believe, but it's in a specific person. It's not enough just to have faith. The object of our faith is important as well. We need to believe in him, in Jesus Christ as my savior, who Jesus really is, not just my misconceptions of who he is. And as you're sharing your faith with individuals in our community, as as you're talking to people, especially if they're religious, they may well have a misunderstanding of who Jesus is. Some see Jesus differently. They may not see him as God. They've got to get to the point where they understand that before they can experience the new birth, just like Nicodemus has to experience that here in this passage. So we see an open invitation, whosoever, a single requirement, we must believe a specific person, we need to believe in him. And that's a reminder too, Acts 4 verse 12 says, there's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. But folks, if we will believe in him, and as we share this with those that we're witnessing to This faith, this belief, does something amazing. It voids a grievous punishment. It takes away a punishment. It says that we won't have to perish. I think perish is tied with the idea of condemnation later on in verse 18 and verse 17 as well. This is the idea of separation from God for all eternity. And that doesn't have to happen if we'll put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ and experience the new birth. It voids a grievous punishment, but it also secures an amazing, a dazzling future, everlasting life. Eternity in heaven with God forever and ever. And we read through passages like this and we can't help but think, why would anybody turn this down? Why would anybody reject this? Why would somebody hear this and understand this and say, no, I don't want this? The passage goes on and he explains it. Verse 19, this is the condemnation that light has come into the world. And men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. And everyone that does evil hates the light and neither comes to the light lest his deeds should be reproved or exposed or made manifest. But he that does truth comes to the light that his deeds might be made manifest that they are wrought in God. Why do people turn down this offer? It's because they love their sin more than they love a Savior. And that's basically what it says in the rest of that passage. But I think what Nicodemus is saying to, to, what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus is if you want to enter the kingdom, you must be born again. Nicodemus, if you want to be born again, you can't earn it. The only way you can be born again is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and who he is and what he did upon the cross. And he makes it very clear as we work through the passage. Let's let's take a couple minutes and look at a few lessons that we can learn as we're thinking about sharing our faith with others. The first thought that hit me as I was working through this is this. The person must first be lost before they can be found. It makes sense. And we understand that idea. Uh, They must understand their need before they're going to accept a savior. Um... You know, if, if, if I'm in a boat and somebody hands me a life jacket, I may not take it as serious, you know, if, if I thought everything was fine. But if all of a sudden there's a gaping hole in the side of the boat, <laughs> I've got a need, I'm going to take that life jacket with a little more urgency. People need to understand that they're lost before they'll accept their need of a Savior. And Jesus was kind of hard on Nicodemus here. He didn't pull any punches. And I don't think we need to be harsh or abrasive, but as we're talking to people, we need to be direct and we need to be clear. They need to understand their needs. Secondly, what a person believes about Jesus Christ determines whether he is truly going to be born again or not. And there's two thoughts here. One, intellectual faith is not saving faith. And getting that person to just intellectual faith where they have the understanding to where now they will receive and believe is a work of the Holy Spirit. All we can do is present the truth. The Holy Spirit has to work in their hearts. It's it's a birth of of water in the Spirit. But on the other side of that, uh, this belief, uh, getting to the point where we acknowledge this, and it's not just intellectual, it is actually a a faith in my heart. Believing That type of believing is the first step, but then appropriating his death needs to follow. In other words, I need to act upon that faith. I need to receive him into my heart as well. Uh, Putting on the parachute of faith is not enough. We must exit the plane of works and self-reliance. Does that make sense? There comes a point where if I put the parachute on, I still have to jump out of the plane. I've got to demonstrate that my faith is real and that is genuine. Number three, there's a point in every encounter with the lost where unbelief becomes volitional. Where we give them information and knowledge and understanding and it gets to the point where they, okay, now they've processed it, they understand, and at that point they have to make a choice. Am I going to accept this or am I going to reject this? Am I going to believe or am I going to remain in my unbelief? Our goal is to help them get to that point, and Jesus did that here with Nicodemus. And then I think it's a good reminder that not everybody makes that right choice immediately, do they? We need to be willing to to keep praying for them and to be patient with them and to look for more opportunities. But I think we can take heart from the example of Nicodemus. I don't know if he left this conversation a saved man. I don't know if there's any way to, to verify that. What do we know? Well, we know that in John 7, he ends up, Defending Jesus to some degree before the, San, the Sanhedrin. They're like, hey, we don't, we don't try anybody until we have all the facts. Let's make sure we get all the information first. He speaks up for Jesus. And then we see him at Jesus' death as he comes with a, with a huge amount of spices to help with the burial process. Um, you know, there's more that we read, in, and this is from tradition sources, and I don't know if we can, you know, how much stock to put in them. I've seen them in several different places. Uh, There's tradition uh, that Nicodemus actually defended Jesus in the trial before Pilate. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. Uh, But I am wondering what that would have been like if he really was a believer at that point, and I think he had to have been, and the Sanhedrin's gathering, and they're pronouncing that that judgment on Jesus. Did he speak up? Did he not speak up? Tradition is that he spoke up at that point. Uh, According to tradition, after the burial and his public announcement as a believer, um, there's, there's numerous accounts of him suffering greatly because of that. Um, being disbarred from the Sanhedrin, taking away his title of a Pharisee, uh, all of his income being taken away and living in poverty and in, 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 in some rough conditions the rest of his life, he suffered greatly for his faith according to these sources. Um, all those things are true. I, I don't know for sure, but my point is Nicodemus at some point came to saving faith in Christ. And that helps me to take heart as I'm presenting the gospel to people. If they don't get it right away, keep praying, keep sharing, uh, keep helping them understand and trust the Holy Spirit to turn the light on for them, just like he did here in this passage for Nicodemus. Oh, my friends, the words to Nicodemus are the same words that Jesus would speak to us. If you want to enter the kingdom, if you want to go to heaven, you must be born again. And that's the message we need to take to the lost world around us as well. God, help us to do that. Father, I thank you for this passage I thank you for the connection between faith and the new birth. Uh, Father, what we looked at today are things that we know, we've heard before. But Father, I pray that you'd help us to truly understand the connection. And Father, grip our hearts with the importance of sharing these truths with other people. Be willing to take our faith and make it known to others. Help them understand the, the wonder of the gospel. Lord, we have this abundant life, this everlasting life, and it is a great thing. But Father, there's people that don't understand it and don't get it. Compel us, Father, to share that with them so they too can experience the joy of abundant life on this earth and everlasting life with you in heaven. And Lord, for that we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.